All right. Turning biblical theology into your biography. In essence, that's what God's called us to do. In essence, that's what Jesus has called us to do. I hope you remember that phrase. You could say about every day, I'm just trying to turn the theology of Scripture into my biography. The subtitle was Truths of Scripture That Will Change the Way We Live. We've looked at the truths of Scripture that tell us, to, in, order work, in, in order to live out this theology, we've got to know who we are. What does the theology say about us? Who does it say we are? And this lesson just shouts, not this lesson, but the whole series just shouts into our culture and what you all face every single hour of every single day. Because whatever has been said here that Scripture says in defining you and who you are, the world is saying something exactly the opposite. I don't want to go back and revisit that, but it's if you go back and you look at at each point, the world has an, our world, our culture, is shouting a completely different message. And it's putting a lot of pressure, a lot of pressure on you and your life. So, who am I? I was created by God. My life begins with Him. It's sustained by Him. It's only by Him. And my life is going to Him begins and my life is the complete context of my life. What the scripture says, you want to know about trip crews from beginning to end, God is the context of his life. Now I'm not saying that I'm not saying that about him as a Christian, if there's a non-Christian standing here, I'd say the same thing. He just doesn't realize it. He has a, he has another beginning. Uh, I was created, created by God in his image, spiritual, personal, rational, moral. I was created by him in his image and was created male and female. All these things coming right out of Scripture said, this is who you are. But because mankind sinned, we saw two weeks ago that we're not sinners first and foremost because of what we say or do. We weren't born into this world kind of neutral, and we chose sin. We saw that we were born with a sin nature, sin at the very core of our being. We looked at David saying, not only that I was born in iniquity, he says, I was conceived. And he wasn't talking about the actual sexual act. He was saying, that, that, that that was evil? No. It's not what the Bible says. He was saying, when I was conceived in my mother's womb, and I had said nothing, I had done nothing, I was a sinner. That's what he said. But I was still, I was still a spiritual being. I was still personal, rational, moral. I still had the image of God, but it served sin and Satan instead of God. So that's who, that's who we are. But how did God respond to that? How did God respond to 
our sin to mankind choosing evil over him, Satan over him. You know, if you are a Christian tonight, you're not the same person you were when you were born. Think about that a minute. Let that sink in. All this is what we've said about you. Something's happened. Something, if you're a Christian, something's changed. You see, Scripture says that this God who made us sent the Holy Spirit to do what we could not do. Nothing we could do. We saw this last week. No amount of effort. No amount of good works. You can, you can go to church all your life. You can do all sorts of religious things. You can just say, you just strive daily, hourly to be a good person. That's not going to change that sinful nature at the core of your being. This being that's alien to God. Alien to Christ. We saw Jesus last week talking about this. And he said in John 6.44, it's not on your scripture sheet, but he said in John 6.44, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. Now he's not saying that God's going to hold you down, that God's holding you down is not going to let you come. He's saying we're held down by our sin nature. We don't want to go to God. God has no appeal to us, not the God of the Scripture. And so Jesus says, if you're going to come to me, the Father has to draw you. So the question is, how does the Father draw you? How does the Father draw you? We saw this last week. One of the great, great conversations in Scripture. Now, I, I love the conversation that Jesus had with Nicodemus. Nicodemus was one of the most religious men in all of Israel. Everyone in Israel, if they'd seen Nicodemus, would have said, there goes a godly man. He went to the temple every day or to the synagogue every day. He prayed several times a day. He knew the Old Testament backwards and forwards. That was his Bible. But Jesus told Nicodemus, in essence, all your knowledge of Scripture, all your synagogue and temple attendance, all your almsgiving will not change your heart. Now, in a few minutes, we're going to talk about sin. And you usually hear a minister say, or ministers say, or Bible teachers say, you can do all these good works, and it won't take away one sin. Well, that's true, but that's not what I'm saying. And that's not what Jesus was saying in John 3. He was saying, Nicodemus, you can do all these things, and it won't change your heart. Well, so what did he tell Nicodemus? Nicodemus said, we pay, pay, he, he paid Jesus a compliment. And Pharisees didn't do that. But there was something about Jesus that appealed Nicodemus. Nicodemus said, we know you're a man sent from God. And Jesus looked at him right now and said, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. <laughs> I mean, and Nicodemus actually replied, what did he say? What did he say? He said, can I enter another 
time into a mother's womb and be born? What are you saying? And Jesus says, you need to be born again by the Holy Spirit. He said, nothing you're doing will change your heart. So that's, that's where we were. The Holy Spirit, we said if we're Christians, the proof of being born again is that you love Christ. You have an affinity for God, an affinity for Christ. You have a different attitude about sin. But, but, here's a, Nicodemus or anyone, if they're only born again, If that was the only message of the gospel, we would still have, and Nicodemus would have, still have a gigantic problem. What is it? He would still be guilty before God. Being born again does not change your position in God's courtroom. You're standing there in all your sin. Something else had to happen. Remember a minute ago I said, he said to third chapter John, Nicodemus, all that work will not change your heart. He wasn't saying all that work. He was not saying all that work won't take away your sin. That would be true, but he didn't say that. But he said it somewhere else. Look on your scripture sheet at Romans three nineteen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may, may that mouth may be shot. It, it's like the Greek word, shut up. Every, every mouth would just be shut up and stop trying to justify themselves. And the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Now, what does justify mean there? Will be justified in his sight. It's a Greek legal term, and it means to declare innocent. And he says, by works of the law, no matter how much you work, no matter how much you do, you'll never be justified. You'll never be declared innocent. So we've got this guilty sinner here. And if, and if it only involved his heart change and the Holy Spirit changed his heart, he's still got a legal problem. So what did God do about that? The world says sometimes, says, well, my God loves me. It was very popular when I went to seminary. Uh, I went to a very liberal seminary. They didn't believe in the deity of Christ, didn't believe uh, in the incarnation, the miracles of Christ, didn't believe he died a substitutionary death. And they would say, God just forgave us. God is love. He just forgave us. That's it. That's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches 
Yes, God does love, but it teaches that God is just. Look on your look at your scripture sheet and look at Exodus 34, 6, and 7. Pay close attention because this verse contains a huge mystery. And he passed in front of Moses proclaiming, The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. So what does that sound like? He's just going to forgive us. Just going to love us. But then look at this. Yet he does not leave the guilty unpunished. What does that say? God's righteous. He's the righteous judge. He's the just judge. In the Old Testament, the rabbis and teachers had a great problem. They knew that was true. They knew that the Bible taught. They knew that that the books of Moses taught, that the prophets taught. God is just. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. That's a huge question. If you would have talked to Paul or Saul before he was converted in the New Testament, he was a lawyer, very knowledgeable, studied under the great Hebrew scholar Gamaliel. And if you would have asked Saul, what's the greatest question you have? He would have said, how does God forgive us of our sins? Those sins got to be atoned. Now, the, the, the animal sacrifice, the sacrifices that God commanded were a symbol that those sins were covered. But Paul would have, Saul would have told you that, that, does, that, that animal's death, that's not going to satisfy the law of God. Huge question. How can a righteous God forgive us? He'll not leave the guilty unpunished. In Scripture, several places in the Old Testament, God or Satan is before God in heaven. And he's accusing God of being unrighteous, of being unjust, because he points out to he points out the priest, he points out the uh, godly people of Israel. He says, they're sinners, and you have not dealt with their sin. You promised that they would die if they sinned. And he would call God. He would accuse the person of a sin and say, he's guilty. He's guilty. How can God be just? Well, God showed Paul or Saul how. And then after his name was changed to Paul, he wrote about it. And it's the Mount Everest. Romans is the theology book of the New Testament. And Paul was, I think there's two great theologians besides Jesus in the New Testament. One of them is the Apostle John. The other 
is, is Paul. And remember in the first three chapters of Romans, I told you that, that Paul was going throughout the world, getting everyone, the Jews and the Gentiles, the educated and the uneducated, every race, every person, male and female, young and old, and indicting them and saying they're all sinners. They're all sinners. They're all guilty before God. And so then he comes down in Romans 3.21. This is the Mount Everest. This is, a man, this is one of those passages that's a, a Mount Everest in Scripture. But now the righteousness of God. Now he's talking about God being just. That's what he's saying. The righteousness of God, the justice of God has been manifested, has been demonstrated apart from the law, apart from obedience to the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared innocent by his grace. As you see there, he's, here's the, he's, he's affirming they're sinners, but they're declared innocent as a gift of his grace. Well, how can God do that and not be unjust? Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What, what redemption is in Christ Jesus? whom Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. That's a great word. I'm going to tell you what it means in a minute. To be received by faith. This was to demonstrate God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So in that passage, he sings, God's righteousness is proven, is demonstrated, apart from the law, apart from man being obedient. That's not going to do it. Then he says, it's true. He admits all have sinned, but they're justified. They're declared innocent. They're declared innocent. How can God declare one clearly guilty of a cosmic sin, rebellion, and treason? How can he declare him innocent? Well, he tells you. Declared innocent, he says, it's by the grace of God through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus. Well, what did he do? Whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood. Anyone want to take a whack at telling me what the definition of propitiation is. If you don't learn anything else tonight, you can go home and say, I know what propitiation means. You know what it means. Anybody know what it means? It's an old word, propitiation. It means satisfaction. It means satisfaction. What it means. He set him forth as a satisfaction in his blood. Well, what was he satisfying? He was satisfying the law of God. He was in the courtroom of God. Why? Because he had taken man's sin upon himself. He took our sin. 
He took what else? Our guilt. What else? He took our punishment. My God, my God. We say in the Apostles' Creed, He descended into hell. And what did this demonstrate? What did this demonstrate? That you were without sin? No. No. That's a byproduct. He was demonstrating the justice of God. Look at God on His throne. The question was, how can God do this and still, how can God let the guilty go free and still be just? This is so important that, remember, we've said this before in this study, that the Hebrew writer, when he wanted to emphasize something, he didn't put it in capital letters, he didn't underline it, he didn't highlight it, he simply repeated it. Uh, just, you know, in your study of Scripture, just remember that. Just remember that one fact. John Sartell told us, told us that if they wanted to emphasize something, they repeated it. Because you, as you read Scripture, you're going to see it over and over again. He'll say one thing in one verse, and then it seems like just by changing a few words, he repeats it. So look at this. Verse, what is it? Verse 25 uh, says... This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. And then he repeats it. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just. If you had your Bible with you, you ought to so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, So, who are you? What did God do about our sin nature? That was dead to him. What did he do? He sent the Holy Spirit to change our hearts. So, who are you tonight? If you've been born again, you're part of a, you're, you're a new creation. You're a different being than you were when you were born. We closed with this last week, 2 Corinthians 5, 17. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, anyone, if anyone's in Christ, that person is a new creation. It's what, what it reads. The old has passed away. The new has come. Wow. New creation. You're a new, you're a new, new creation. You're not the person you were. Different heart. Now, what else? What does it say about Christ dying for your sins? Look at verse 31 of Romans 8. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Now look at this, verse 33. And who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. We've just told you how he did it. 
But it's God that justifies us. He declares us innocent. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Now think about this a minute. Think about this. Here's a creature. You, me, born into this world with a sin nature. Committed a trillion sins. God changes his heart by the Holy Spirit. Well, what an act of mercy. What an act of grace that is. You're not who you were any longer. You may not be home yet. You may struggle with sin. But thanks be to God, you're not the person you once were. It changed. Look around you at the world. Look at the people you know. They have no affinity for Christ. They may go to church. They may be members of the church. But you look at their lives and there's no affinity. There's no love for Christ. There's no love for God. Do you realize that if you love Christ, if you love Him, that manifests a transformation in your life. And that's who you are. You can say, I'm not home yet. And I'm not who I will be one day. But I'm not who I was. Been changed. That's one way you can define yourself. I'll pray that you learn to say that very humbly. It's by God's grace. It's not because of anything you did. But Satan is still going to accuse you. Say, how could you have done that? Nobody that is a Christian could have done what you just did. And the answer is not, well, I don't do it that much. It's only happened one time. Or the answer is not, well, God loves me. There's only one answer. Christ died for that sin and the trillion of other sins. He died. That's what this says right here. Who can bring a charge against you tonight if the Lord takes you home? When you stand in His presence, you'll not only stand as one who's been transformed by the Holy Spirit, you'll stand as one that's forgiven. There's no, you'll stand as one forgiven 
and you'll be able to say to the whole court of heaven, who can bring a charge against me? And it won't be because you're good. It won't be because you're Presbyterian. The only one thing, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. You know, it's not that Jesus died for us and he is twisting God's arm for your forgiveness. The entire Trinity was involved in your salvation in this change that's taking place in your life. Who sent the Holy Spirit to change your heart? The Father did. Who sent His Son? The Father and the Son made an eternal covenant that if, read about it in Isaiah, made an eternal covenant. If you will take their sins, I will be faithful and I'll punish you for their sins. You're saved. And the whole Trinity was involved in your salvation. That's who you are. That is who you are. And Satan will continually try to persuade you. And no, that's not your identity. But you can stand tonight and you go home to glory. Who can bring a charge? That's who I am. Christ died for me. And I I'm not home yet. But I'm not who I used to be. Let's pray. Our Father, I pray for each one of these. You know them by name. The hairs of their head are numbered. You were there when they were born and you'll be there when they take the last breath. Oh, Father, help them, help all of us to live in this world knowing exactly who we are and why we are. Father, help us that this theology will be our biography in this fallen world. And Father, that we will be salt and light because of that to the world around us. Thank you, Father. Thank you for these last few weeks, for the fellowship, for the laughter, for the fun, and for your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.